Please pray with me. Dear Lord, we are humbled this morning that someone so powerful and amazing and beyond our recognition and our knowledge could love us, broken, selfish, hurt, and you come and offer us compassion and forgiveness. You bring joy into our lives and you give us everything we could ever need. Help us to recognize all that you do for us. And turn our lives into blessings back to you. Lord's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite the junior church children up here to give us a little presentation.
Hi, my name is Sophia Templeton. I help with the junior church program that meets during the 820 service on Sunday mornings. This year, along with the guidelines from each of Pastor Wes's sermons, we were discovering ways in which God's character can be displayed through us. During the next couple of weeks, we are working on a project that will help us understand ways in which we can show God's love to other people. Last year, we saved our nickels and dimes and raised money to buy school supplies for the refugees. Children at Jericho Road. This year, our project is still with Jericho Road. I will let the junior church members tell you more. Refugees pack up just what they need when they have to leave. Refugees are people... Refugees are special people because they came from far away. When they, when they come from Buffalo, they don't have things to keep them warm. But we have lots of coats, even extras, that we can give away. We will be collecting all sorts of winter gear for both refugee children and adults. Over the next two weeks, you can bring in extra coats to give away to people in Buffalo. It gets really cold there. We invite you to join us in donating the following items. Kids winter coats. Adult winter coats. And boom. And scarves. Mittens and gloves. And hats. And blankets. All right, so um, what our children are doing is each week we, as Sophia was telling you, is that we are working on showing God's character um, through different ways of understanding who he is. And then we also want to try to do something physically to help our children understand. This is, it's called Bundle Up Buffalo. You may have heard of the organization Jericho Road, and they do this Bundle Up Buffalo program. Last year, from my understanding, they had a whole church filled with coats. Um, it opened The doors opened at 8 a.m., and by 10, they had to start turning people away. So if you have any stuff lying around, coats, hats, gloves, blankets, new, used, if you see a good deal, get it for next year if we're already done. Um, we're able to collect from September 28th and October 5th for the next two Sundays. We're going to have a bin up in the youth group, youth room, which is upstairs in the, um, what's the building called? The CE building. Oh, and we'll put one back here too. Heidi said, right out in the, in the lobby back there. So um, we'll do that. And then the really neat part is on October 11th, our children invited with, are invited with their families to actually go deliver the coats and help give them to the families that are in need. So it gives our kids really a neat opportunity to really be involved. So um, if you have anything lying around, come help us. And we are super excited for this project. Thank you so much. All right. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back but a portion of all that God has blessed us with.
Lots of things going on in um, the world, in our uh, our lives, our own lives, people that we love and care about. As we gather for prayer today, I'm thinking maybe this would be a day when you would want to uh, come to the altar to offer your prayers for yourself, maybe for someone else that uh, you feel a burden for, maybe some of the situations in the world that... We see in the news uh, our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution. Uh, just a lot of things happening. If you'd like to come and use the altar as a place where you offer your prayers for yourself, for others, please come and join me.
Father, this morning as we gather in this place, we give you thanks for your grace and mercy. And we offer our prayers for the needs that are on our minds today. We pray, Father, that you will heal the sick, that you will comfort those who feel deep pain from the losses that are a part of our lives, that you will restore our homes to what you and we want them to be. We pray, Father, that you will, um, that you will meet the needs that we uh, are in our hearts today. We pray for Bruce, for Alton. We pray for Matt and Dick, for Isla, for Bev, for Edna and for Linda, for Micah and for Bill, for Crystal and for Emily, and for others for whom we feel burdened today. We pray, Father, for your grace upon uh, our world. We think about to continue to pray for those who are uh, in the midst of the Ebola crisis. We pray, Father, that you will bring an end to this uh, disease and suffering and death. We pray, Father, that it will be evident that you are at work in healing and restoring. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters, particularly those in Iraq who are facing continual threats from ISIS. There are horrific things that are happening. We ask for your protection for our brothers and sisters. We pray that you will bring an end to the evil that is prevalent there. And we ask that you will give courage and strength to your church. And Father, as we watch your church stand tall in the midst of almost unbelievable opposition, that we will be inspired to be courageous for you where we are. Father, we pray that you will continue to bless the the outreach of our church as we help those who are struggling with very practical needs of food, clothing, shelter. We ask that your Holy Spirit would uh, would be poured out upon all that we have opportunity to serve. We pray that what we give will be seen as a gift from you and that it will be a means of of life change in the hearts and minds of all who receive. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Continue to fill our hearts with compassion toward all who are in need. Father, we thank you for your blessings in our lives. And we ask that you will make us channels of blessing to others. 
Thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives us the motto for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Following the scripture reading, um, children may be dismissed for Children's Church, and there is no junior church this week. Acts 2, 42 through 47, the fellowship of the believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Please stand as we sing together. Stir our affections to love you more. Turn our attentions from this empty world. Help us count. Yes. 
Father, continue to work in our hearts as we continue to worship you. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. There are a lot of reasons that, a lot of things that shape our idea about God. Experiences, traumas, an environment in which we're raised, the way we were trained. But one of the most profound elements of life that shapes our understanding of God is our experiences with the church. I would suspect that most people who have a negative view of God have a negative view of the church. You think about your own life and your own journey through your your faith walk. You think about other people that you know and their journey through their faith walk. And if people are honest with us, and if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that Often our view of God is shaped by the experiences we have with the church. That can be both positive and negative. Often we sort of ignore the positive and we focus on the negative. But our understanding of God is so often shaped by our experiences with the church. And That is often a problem because, quite frankly, we struggle with the church sometimes because it is so far from being perfect. Now, I know our church is different than most, but, you know, there are churches out there. Most other churches are not as perfect as we are. I have some real estate I want to sell you if you believe that. You know, we we struggle with the church because it's not perfect. It's not perfect because we're not perfect. The minute you make human people a part of something, it's going to be imperfect because none of us are perfect. But in the church, we have standards. We set our, our sights on, on, a, on a level, a height that is almost unattainable. And when we don't attain that, we become very disappointed, frustrated, disillusioned. And we wrestle with the church. It is one of the reasons why you will hear so many people, particularly now, say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. What they mean by that is, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with his people. And that, you know, 
we probably all go through certain moments where we wrestle with that. In his book, Practice Resurrection, Eugene Peterson tells about a friend of his, also a pastor, who had a, a man in his church who just became so frustrated with the church and the people in the church and their, their, uh, their attitudes and, and how they were viewing things that he disagreed with completely. And he basically told the pastor, I'm giving up on the church. I'm excommunicating myself from the church. It's just me and Jesus. And the gentleman, the, the pastor, you know, realized that after they'd had a few conversations, it, it wasn't getting better. And so he wrote him a letter. And, and in this letter, he, he wrote these words. He said, I agree it's very hard to participate in the church over time and retain your humanity. You correctly deplore what you criticize. And then he followed up with this question. He said, yet do you worship with the congregation, scrub its floors, change its babies, face its crises, humble yourself to its relational intricacies? The Jesus you admire did. He honored and observed worship and community. He lived as a participant, even though that very community ended up putting him on a cross. And he said the church is woefully sinful, distorted, and inadequate, but it's still in the worshipers that God has chosen to work, live, and sometimes be crucified. It's the church that Jesus says he will build and that hell will not prevail against. It's the church. And we can be upset about the church. We can complain about the church. We can become disillusioned about the church. But the reality is the church is not a human idea. It's God's idea. The community of faith is something God created and God established. And as we read the scriptures, we find that if you want to be Christian, at some point or another, you have to consider the church. You have to deal with the church. You have to be a part of the church. And as I get older and move along in my own faith, I am coming to to believe that it is virtually impossible outside of extenuating circumstances to be fully the people that God, the person that God created me to be and you to be without the church. We will not be the people we were intended to be until we connect to the church. We talked last week about how how the, the thing that sets God apart from us is the fact that he is completely other than us. Not that he, is, that he has distanced himself from us, but in his nature and his character. He is perfect and we are anything but. But he's perfect in love and power and grace and holiness and he wants to be with us. And I am convinced that God has called the church to be different. One of the questions, actually a number of questions that were asked were related to the church. As you, you were asking questions about things that you'd like to hear a sermon about. And one of the questions are sort of summarized in, why would anyone want to be a part of the church? When you see all the things going on in the church, all the stuff, all the troubles, all the difficulties, why would anyone in their right mind want to be a part of that? Well, because it's Christ's church. And if people are going to want to be a part of the church, then it has to be different. It has to be other than all the rest of society and culture outside of the church. 
Something needs to set us apart. And I think there are some things about what that means that are important for us to grasp. I think we are set apart to love each other. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Jesus says to his disciples, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love each other. That's the distinguishing characteristic. But what does it mean to love each other? I think wrapped up in that is this idea of unity. That we have a spirit of connectedness, a spirit of oneness with each other. In this passage from Acts chapter 2 that we read a few moments ago, it, it describes the early church as saying they were together and they had everything in common. There was a unity of spirit among them. Now, do they all agree about everything? Are you kidding me? Remember, this is a group of human beings here. You think about just the 12 disciples. How vastly different they are. Different perspectives about life and what it means to be the people of God in that time. You had Matthew on the one hand who's a tax collector and who's basically saying we ought to cooperate with the Romans. And then you have others on the other side who are zealots and their whole perspective of life as a Jew is to crush the Romans and get away from the Romans. And they are together in this little group of 12. And yet... Jesus talks about unity. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, be united to one another. He says, we need to live in harmony with each other, not get rid of the divisions. Be united in thought and purpose. As someone was saying to me recently, as we were talking about this, this whole idea of the church, talking about how we tend to say, let's agree to disagree when we have our differences of opinion. And I thought they made a really profound point. They said, that's not enough. Because to agree to disagree implies, basically, we're just not going to get along. And we just are going to avoid this subject. And quite frankly, I'm right, you're wrong. So, you know, we'll just walk away from it. It's got to be more than that. To be be in unity means we may disagree about an issue. And as we move along in these questions, I guarantee you, we're going to be a number of issues that we're going to disagree about. You're going to disagree with me. We're going to disagree with each other. The question is, do we love each other even though we disagree? Are we committed to each other even though we don't see eye to eye about these things? Is our mindset, we may disagree, but... You have some things that you're right about and maybe I'm wrong about them and I need to learn from you. And you can probably learn from me. It's not a mindset of I'm right, you're wrong. Hopefully you'll come to that conclusion someday. It's a unity of spirit. Jesus prays some of the last words before he goes to the cross. Father, make them one as you and I are one. He's saying, I want the church to be united as one body, as the Trinity is united as one body. And every time we work against unity, we are in essence working against the prayer of Jesus. That doesn't seem like a good idea to me. We are connected to each other. We have the spirit of unity and oneness as we love each other. And that unity that we have with each other is is about how we treat one another, how we think about one another, how we act toward each other. 
I, I think that when we think about the unity of each other, often it involves sacrifice. It involves serving each other, thinking more about the other person than about myself. Isn't that the nature of Jesus? We serve each other. Serving each other is difficult. It's hard. That's what fascinates me so much about what Paul writes to the, uh, to the Colossians. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, I rejoice in the fact that I am suffering for you. Now, you know, we don't like suffering for ourselves. It's a whole other dynamic to say, I am willing, I'm rejoicing about suffering for you and you for me. And yet here's Paul sitting in this stinking prison in chains and saying, I am so excited about the fact that I can suffer in your place. I can sacrifice for you. I don't think we have a real grasp of that. And yet, this is the church being the church. Giving of ourselves to each other. You look at this, this passage Again, at the early church here in Acts 2. And it says that they are not only in common with each other, but as anybody has need, they are helping each other. Some people are selling fields and giving the money because there are people who have needs. They're sacrificing for each other. And isn't that what we do in the church? If you haven't read Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, I would encourage you to to read it. It is a... It's a fascinating book. It's all about the the story of the prodigal son. He makes some observations in there that I never thought about before. He talks about how when the inheritance is divided, more than likely, the father gives half to his younger son, he gives half to the older son. And one reason may well be that the older son is so upset when his younger son comes home and his father welcomes him back into the family, not as a servant, to earn his way, but as a brother again, as a son, is because the elder brother realizes that the only means of supporting this younger son, his food, his clothing, his shelter, is out of his inheritance. And, you know, you can understand that. We'd say, hey, he wasted his inheritance too bad. I'm saving mine. I'm holding on to mine. I'm being wise with mine. I'm not giving it to him. No wonder he's upset. But then he goes on to say what I think Jesus would have liked, what he would have, God would have liked for, the father liked for this elder son to say. To come to his father and say, we haven't heard anything from my brother for a long time. I suspect things are not going well. I'm going to go look for him. And when I find him, and I suspect he has probably wasted the whole thing because he's acting like a fool right now. I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to welcome him into the home and I'll use my inheritance to take care of him. That's what we do with each other. That's what it means to be the church. Even when we make bad decisions, we support each other. We care for each other. We sacrifice for each other. And as Paul says, we do it not begrudgingly with having to sort of peel our hands open to get anything out of us. We do it in a, in a celebration. We rejoice in the fact that we have something to share with people who don't. And 
isn't that really what the church is to be? And we more often than not are sacrificing for people who are most vulnerable in the church. It says something about how we define success. This is what sets the church apart. One of the things from all the rest of the world is that we don't define success the way everyone else does. We tend to define success in our culture and society, and not just ours, it's been going on a long time. We define success by power, influence, wealth. And the church defines success the way Jesus does. The way God always has. There's nothing wrong with with having some of these things like power and wealth and influence. As long as those things are used for people who have needs. You look back to the Old Testament, how over and over again, God says to his people, you have a responsibility to care for people who can't care for themselves. As as the nation of Israel, your responsibility is to care for aliens and strangers and widows and orphans. The people who are most vulnerable. Leviticus 23, and this is repeated other times. God says to Israel, don't you dare reap the harvest to the edges of your field. You leave that for people who have no place to get a harvest. And you be generous with them and you let them take as much as they want. Because by doing that, you are signaling that if, even if you run out, I will take care of you. You sacrifice for people who are vulnerable, who have needs. Jesus says in Matthew 25, when he gets to the end, he says, we're going to divide the people, sheep and the goats. How are you going to divide them? What you did to the least of these You did to me. How you treated people who are most vulnerable is a direct reflection of what you think about me. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is toward people who are most vulnerable. And that's why we take our ministry to children and youth so seriously. Because More often than not, the most vulnerable people in our community of faith are our children. Their their hearts and their minds are at a place where they can be shaped. And we have the privilege and the opportunity to be a part of shaping them. Helping them to know the love of Christ. Helping them to know the grace of God in their lives. That's our privilege. And, you know, it seems to me that if we really took that seriously, every year when we are organizing our children's and youth ministry, we would have so many people wanting to help, we wouldn't be able to use everyone. Because all of us are saying, I want to give my time and my energy and my attention to those who are most vulnerable. And it's not limited to our children, but they are a big part of it. It's the church being the church. And something about that mindset, about thinking about other people, sets us apart from the way everyone else thinks. 
And that then takes us out into the world. Because ultimately, our witness in the church reflects to our witness of the world. And that's why Jesus says, everyone's going to know you're my disciples by how you interact with each other. And as Gerhard Lofink says, that's not just preparing to be a witness for Christ. Loving each other, being the church together is our witness for Christ. Because that's what it means to be the church. It's fascinating to me when you come to the end of this section of Acts chapter 2. That he says they, had, they were in favor, held in favor by all people. And the Lord added to the number daily who were being saved. Because they were together, because they were united, because they were taking care of each other, because they had the spirit of Christ among them, other people went, there's something different about them. I want to know what that is. And you and I have the privilege and the responsibility to be that kind of witness. To think about how the rest of the world thinks and to think how our lives together are impacting people. What they're seeing of Christ in us together. You know, when we lived in Wisconsin, we had a gentleman in our church who worked for the Department of Agriculture. He um, was the county agent and one of his one of his jobs was to help farmers discover uh, new ways uh, better ways of producing bigger crops and healthier crops and so he would introduce new seeds and fertilizers and planting methods and he said almost invariably every time something new was introduced the farmers were always hesitant to use it because what they'd been doing was working just fine and You know, this new thing might not work at all and it could be disastrous. And so they began, they found, discovered years before, the way to take care of that is to create demonstration plots. You've seen them, you know, out by the side of the road, like they have pictures of the new seed they're planting or talking about a new way of planting or whatever they're doing with it. And they create this demonstration plot. And invariably, when they get to the harvest time, the plot is reaps a better harvest than what the farmers have been using. And when the next spring came around and they said, hey, do you want to try that? The farmers would line up and say, yeah, let's do that. Because they'd seen it at work. And in essence, we as the church are God's demonstration plot to the world. We are, by a very, the very nature of who we are, we are communicating who Christ is. We're communicating to the rest of the world. This is something that you ought to want. Why would anyone want to be a part of the church? Because we're different. Not in an odd, weird kind of way. But in a way that looks like Jesus and acts like Jesus. And communicates the spirit of Jesus. And that really is what makes the difference. We can do all these other things. But we will continually fall short over and over and over again. Until our focus, our center is in Christ. If Christ is not the center of the church, then I would argue we're not really the church. We're just a group of people who happen to maybe think alike or have some things in common or like to do things together. We're really only the church 
when we're centered and focused on Jesus. It's fascinating to me that in chapter 4 of Acts, after Peter and John have been arrested for preaching the gospel, and they're standing before the Sanhedrin and the Jewish rulers, and they have this interview with them, and the rulers look at each other, and it says they are amazed because they realize that Peter and John are just ordinary, unschooled men. And then it says, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. What a fascinating description. They had been with Jesus. That changes everything. And that's why we come to this table today. We come to this table to remind us that we are undeserving recipients of God's grace in Christ. Anything good in our lives, anything good in us as a body of believers is because of the grace of Christ. And all we're really trying to do as his people is to live in that grace and extend that grace to each other and to the world. At this table, we remember it's about Jesus. It's not really about you. It's not really about me. It's about Jesus. And we will only be the people of God when our lives individually and corporately are about Jesus. We struggle with unity because we're more about us than about him. We struggle to to sacrifice and to serve each other because we're more about us than about him. We struggle to care about people that are in need in the world around us because we're more about us than about him. This table brings us back to reality. It's all about him. Why would anyone want to be a part of the church with all of its failings and misgivings and struggles and problems because it's ultimately about Jesus. And all we're really doing is offering people, each other and others, Jesus. And in the spirit of humility and grace, And love. We focus on Jesus. And it changes everything. Holy Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We are undeserving people. We come to this table this morning recognizing that we are undeserving people. And yet you have offered us your grace and called us to be the church. Father, we pray that you will unite our hearts in you to serve one another in you, to care about those who are most needy in you. And to take your message of grace 
to the world. We pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing on the bread and the cup. That they may be food to our individual and corporate souls. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples and took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night he took the cup. Again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. just means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. You can return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. We also have trays of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the ushers know as your row is released. And if you need gluten-free wafers, we have those available here too. Just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God, with a desire in your heart to, to know the grace of God in your life and to connect with God's people through His grace, come, receive these gifts from our loving and gracious Heavenly Father. The cup and the loaf, you beckon us close to commune. Like fruit on the vine, crushed into wine, you bruised. Broken and torn, crowned with scorn, poured out for all.
We taste and we drink. You satisfy us with your love. Your goodness flows down and waters dry ground like a flood. Let mercy reign, saving grace, pour out for all. All I sing, all our shame, all our secrets, all our chains. Lamb of God, great is your love, your blood covers it all.
to your word, we're digging deep to know our Father's heart. Into the world, we're reaching out to show them who you are. So living water flowing through, God, we thirst for more of you. Fill our hearts and flood our souls with one desire. Just to know. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.